Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon Sunday School live. Well, not live, but I'm on the air anyway. And bringing you the seventh lesson in the Come Follow Me manual on the Book of Mormon. Today's date is February 9th, 2024. It is time to talk about 2 Nephi, chapters 3, 4, and 5, which is the material for this assignment. So let me go ahead and put my slides up on the screen. Yep, it's Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon, where you learn stuff you're never going to hear in regular Sunday school. 2 Nephi 3 through 5, it's for the week of February 12th through 18th of 2024. Once again, this is lesson number seven. I have something to say about each of these chapters, so I better get started. First off, 2 Nephi 3 contains an extended prophecy about Joseph Smith, Joseph the seer. And the way it's put in there is that it's a prophecy, it's a blessing that Lehi is given to his son, Joseph. Remember, he gives a blessing to all of his children and then to all of his grandchildren right before he passes away. In this way, the first few chapters of 2 Nephi are echoing Genesis chapter 49, which is where Jacob, i.e. Israel, gathers his 12 sons together before he dies and gives each of them a blessing. That will play into what we're going to talk about tonight. But this is how Lehi starts it. And now I speak unto you, Joseph, my last born. And since he's speaking to his son named Joseph, he's going to give him a prophecy. He's going to copy down a prophecy that Lehi says is on the brass plates. And this prophecy was made by Joseph of old, Joseph in Egypt, the Joseph we read about in Genesis, the Joseph who is the son, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. All right. Lehi keys off the name Joseph and says, for behold, thou art the fruit of my loins, the fruit of my loins. That phrase is going to get said a lot in this chapter. And I am a descendant of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. So we find out Lehi is a descendant of Joseph. And great were the covenants of the Lord, which he made unto Joseph. Wherefore, Joseph truly saw our day. Now, we learn that not only is Lehi a descendant of Joseph, which means that Joseph is a descendant, his Joseph is a descendant of Joseph. We also find out that Joseph of old saw our day. Lehi is saying he saw our day. How did he see our day? There's nothing in the Bible as we have it that contains any prophecy of Joseph about our day. There might be one verse that would constitute a prophecy of Joseph, but it's not about the Nephites. And it's not about our day, at least not in the Bible as we have it today. And here's this prophecy from 2 Nephi 3, verse 5. Wherefore, Joseph truly saw our day. We just read that. And he obtained a promise of the Lord that out of the fruit of his loins, the Lord God would raise up a righteous branch unto the house of Israel, not the Messiah. This expression, not the Messiah, is a strange thing because typically we would think of the Messiah as a person, maybe a superhuman person, but a person nonetheless. But it appears to be used here in reference to the branch, which would be more than one person. A righteous branch unto the house of Israel, not the Messiah, but a branch which was to be broken off. Nevertheless, to be remembered in the covenants of the Lord that the Messiah should be made manifest unto them in the latter days in the spirit of power 
unto the bringing of them out of darkness unto light, yea, out of hidden darkness and out of captivity into freedom. Now notice, it talks not only about the fruit of his loins, but this righteous branch. And what I think is, is that this prophecy, this verse is keying off the blessing that Jacob gave to Joseph in the Old Testament. That's chapter 49. And here it is on the screen, verse 22. Jacob blessing Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. That's the first line of this uh, somewhat longer blessing. But it's the important line for purposes of this discussion, because the connection is being made not only fruitful, right? A fruitful bough, fruit of thy loins, but also the branches. And this is a branch that's broken off. But Genesis 49 has Joseph being a fruitful bough, which is a branch. And it says, whose branches ran over the wall. I don't hear this verse quoted that much in church anymore. But I used to hear it all the time when I joined because this was used, Genesis 49, 22, as a proof text that the Book of Mormon is true. Because indeed, the Book of Mormon is written by the descendants of Joseph. They were broken off. They're a branch. They're fruitful. They went over a wall of the well, which apparently is this idea of crossing water. I mean, you really have to interpret that into it, obviously. But so it's a well, it's water. So they sail across the ocean to the Americas. They become fruitful. They multiply. It's a perfect match. What I'm going to suggest at this point is that Joseph Smith himself, before he wrote the Book of Mormon, already understood Genesis 49:22 in this way. And that is why this prophecy is tailored this way and why the Book of Mormon itself is tailored the way it is. So if Joseph Smith is seeing this book that he is authoring as being in part a fulfillment of this prophecy that Jacob gives to Joseph or this blessing, then Joseph Smith would have to be sure and make this group of people that he's creating be descendants of Joseph. Why? Because that's what the blessing says. And sure enough, as we just saw, Lehi says he's a descendant of Joseph. We find out in Alma chapter 10, verse 3, that not only is he a descendant of Joseph, he's a descendant of Joseph through the line of Manasseh. Joseph, Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Lehi descends from Joseph through the line of Manasseh. That's where it says Alma 10.3, and Amenadi, not Abinadi, Amenadi, was a descendant of Nephi, who was the son of Lehi, who came out of the land of Jerusalem, who was a descendant of Manasseh, who was the son of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt by the hands of his brethren. So definitely the Nephites, both Lamanites and uh, the Nephites, maybe not the Ishmaelites, we don't know about them, are descended from Joseph, just as the prophecy would have it. He goes on to prophesy about raising up a seer. In other words, this is the extended prophecy of Joseph of old that's not in the Bible that Lehi is quoting to his son Joseph in 2 Nephi 3. For Joseph truly testified, saying, A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. Yea, Joseph truly said, Thus saith the Lord unto me, A choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. And unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins. His brethren 
which shall be of great worth unto them, even to the bringing of them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. Skipping to verse 11. But a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word. That's the Book of Mormon. It's about Joseph Smith. Unto the seed of thy loins, and not to the bringing forth my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them, which would be presumably the Bible. And elsewhere, the Book of Mormon talks about how the Book of Mormon will testify to the truth of the Bible, and the Bible will testify to the truth of the Book of Mormon. And this interesting detail, which makes it a lock, that's talking about Joseph Smith, right? Verse 15, and his name, this choice seer, his name shall be called after me. Joseph of old speaking, his name shall be called after me. So his name's going to be Joseph. That's Joseph Smith Jr. And it shall be after the name of his father, i.e. Joseph Smith Sr. Wow, what a, what a hit. And he shall be like unto me, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people into salvation. Once again, the Book of Mormon. It's an amazing prophecy. Isn't it amazing that Joseph of old, who lived thousands of years ago, could foresee Joseph Smith as the seer of the restoration and could even tell us not only Joseph's name, but also the name of his father? Question, is it purely a coincidence that this prophecy does not appear in the Bible, but does appear in the Book of Mormon, which was translated by Joseph Smith. Not to worry, though, this prophecy of Joseph of old, though lost from the Bible we have today, did exist in the Bible as it was originally. And it also existed on the brass plates that Lehi and company took with them into the wilderness. How do we know this? because Joseph Smith put it there when he was doing the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He takes the entire prophecy, almost the entire prophecy, from 2 Nephi 3, which is Lehi quoting Joseph of old, and now when he's doing the Joseph Smith translation, he puts that entire prophecy in Genesis, in Joseph's mouth, so that Lehi can be quoting it, even though, interestingly, Book of Mormon is translated in 1829, and Joseph Smith doesn't get around to translating Genesis chapter 50 until three years later in July or August of 1832. This is how it ends, the book of Genesis. It ends on verse 26. Let's go with 22. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Remember, that's one of his kids. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, that's the other of his children, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So if there's any prophecy that Joseph makes, that's it in verse 24. And all he's saying is that even though we're in Egypt now, God is going to visit you and bring you out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, which he swore to Abraham to give to you. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence, my bones from Egypt to the land of Canaan for burial. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, because he's in Egypt, right? And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how Genesis ends, but not with the Joseph Smith translation. 
King James Version, Genesis ends at 50, verse 24. Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 50 does not end until verse 38. Why is it so much longer? Well, I bet you can already guess. Because Joseph takes the final five verses of Genesis about Joseph that we just read and adds a great deal of material to make them into 14 more verses. Similar to how Joseph took a verse or two about Enoch and expanded it to two chapters in the book of Moses. So he's doing the same thing. And he's he's inserting a great deal of new material. It's not just changing a few words in a previously existing text. This is one of those rare occasions where Joseph Smith just adds a whole lot of new material to the text. And we can see why he would do that. And we can imagine where he got it from. 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 3. So what is in the final 14 verses of Genesis 50, Joseph Smith translation? Yes, virtually a word-for-word recapitulation of what we find in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 3. And here we have, for comparison purposes, 2 Nephi 3, verses 6 and 7, compared to Joseph Smith's Genesis 50, verses 26 and 27. You'll see they're identical. Lehi says, for Joseph truly testified, saying, quote, a seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer into the fruit of my loins. And when it appears in Genesis 50, we don't have uh, anybody saying Joseph said it because Joseph is presented as saying it already. A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. It's word for word. And you'll see verse 27 of Genesis 50, Joseph Smith is identical to 2 Nephi 3 verse 7. There's a bit of a variation here in 2 Nephi 3, verse 8, and Genesis 50, 28, Joseph Smith, that I want to mention. Because in 1829, when Joseph Smith is dictating the Book of Mormon, this is what the prophecy of Joseph looks like. And I will give unto him, that's Joseph Smith Jr., and I will give unto him a commandment that he shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. And I will make him great in mine eyes, for he shall do my work. Now, we're going to talk about other revelations in addition to this one, which appear to indicate that as of 1829, Joseph Smith saw his role as exclusively translating the Book of Mormon. And then he's done. That's the only work the Lord has for him to do. But by 1835 and before then, Joseph Smith is seeing that he's going to be doing a lot more than just translating the Book of Mormon. So he wants to modify these verses, which seem to limit his abilities and his work to remove that impediment so he can do other things after translating the Book of Mormon. So in Genesis 50, Joseph Smith translation of the same verse, it doesn't say, I will make him great in mine eyes, for he shall do my work. He shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. It says, he shall bring them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers, and he shall do whatsoever work I shall command him. Not he shall do none other work in 1829, 2 Nephi 3, but in Genesis 50, Joseph Smith translation from 1832, he shall do whatsoever work I shall command him. So it seems to be expanded, Joseph Smith's work, even by changing the words of what is ostensibly the same prophecy. So here's that timeline. In 1829, Joseph Smith receives a revelation. It says, he hath a gift to translate the book, and I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift. 
That's 1829. Now, I want to skip down there to the second from the bottom, the 1833 Book of Commandments, chapter 4, verse 2, which is the publication of the 1829 Revelation that I just referenced, and it, and it maintains the same wording. And he has a gift to translate the book, and I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift, for I will grant him no other gift. It's the same thing, right? Book of Mormon, that's it, you're done, end of story. But between the publication of 1833 Book of Commandments and the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, when the same revelation was reprinted, Joseph Smith changed the language. This is in section 5, verse 4. That's where it got recodified, and the language has been changed as follows. And you have a gift to translate the plates. And this is the first gift that I bestow upon you. Wait a second, that wasn't in the original revelation. And I have commanded you that you should pretend to no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this. Oh, see, it's being qualified now with the extra language. For I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. You can see all the changes that Joseph Smith was making with the revelation so that he was not excluded or limited to translating the Book of Mormon, and that was it. Now he can do other things. And my question here is whether this is also similarly, though not as clearly, referenced in the change between this prophecy of Joseph of old, as it appears in the Book of Mormon in 1829, versus how it appears in the Joseph Smith translation in 1832. Book of Mormon says, I will give him a commandment that he shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. And then 1832, Joseph Smith translation, 50 verse 28. He shall do whatsoever work I shall command him. So there seems to be a shift going on, both in the revelation as well as in this prophecy of Joseph of old. Issues relating to 2 Nephi 3. Frankly, it always made me uncomfortable reading it. Not only does it have over and over this kind of creepy phrase, fruit of thy loins, right? I didn't like that, but I figured that was just my own my own bias, my own prejudice. I need to get past it. But even worse than that, every time I would read it, 2 Nephi 3, the thought would cross my mind. It's an obvious tell that not only did Joseph Smith author the Book of Mormon, but, but he thought so highly of himself as to put a rather obviously retrofitted prophecy into Genesis 50 about himself and how great he is. He put it in Genesis 50 after he put it into 2 Nephi 3. It's obviously about Joseph Smith and who's producing the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith. Who's adding all this text to Genesis 50 three years later? Joseph Smith. Seems a little suspicious. But then entering stage left to save the day, the Messiah Ben Joseph. It turns out that there is an ancient and somewhat little known tradition among the Jews of a Messiah Ben Joseph. Now, the Ben means son of, so that's a Messiah who's a savior or deliverer, who's a son of Joseph or a descendant of Joseph. We all know about the Messiah Ben Judah or Judah, who's the Messiah, who's a descendant of Judah. That's believed to be Jesus Christ by Christians. Obviously, the Jews don't believe that part, but they do believe in a Messiah Ben Judah. This connection with Joseph Smith and the Messiah Ben Joseph was made, I believe, by Joseph Fielding McConkie the son of Bruce R. McConkie. And I think it was published in this book. I think this might be the original book. 
His name shall be Joseph is the title of the book. Ancient Prophecies of the Latter-day Seer, Joseph Fielding, McConkie. I remember I came upon this idea when I was reading a farm's reprint of this article by Joseph Fielding McConkie and how the tradition of the Messiah ben Joseph is actually what it is that's being talked about in 2 Nephi 3. In other words, it's hooking in and linking up with an actual Jewish tradition about a Messiah who would be a descendant of Joseph. So we're starting with the Messiah ben Judah in order to understand the Messiah ben Joseph. The Messiah ben Judah is the Messiah foretold by ancient Jewish prophets. We find him all over the Old Testament. He's a military leader who would overthrow those dominating the people of Israel and establish a united kingdom of Israel and sit on the throne of Israel forever. Okay? He's like a superhero. Jesus was believed by some to be the Messiah. I said Messiah ben David. should be Messiah ben Joseph. But after he was crucified, they deferred their expectation to his second coming. So Jesus was thought by many to be in his lifetime the Messiah, Ben Judah. But then he got crucified. Well, you can't lead a revolt from a cross. So he died. That's not in the cards for the Messiah, Ben Judah. So what they did was they deferred the expectation of Jesus being the Messiah, Ben Judah, until Jesus comes again. That's why you read in the book of Revelation about Jesus coming on the white horse, having the crowns, having the sword proceeding out of his mouth. It's got two edges. He takes no prisoners. And he conquers the forces of evil, and he sets up his throne to rule and reign forever. That's the tradition of the Messiah, Ben Judah. But Jesus did not do that the first time around. Okay, there are actually four messiahs in this tradition, or craftsmen. There's very little about it in the writings of the Jews. There's a few people who've mentioned it. But the only place in the Bible that is said to talk about this is in the book of Zechariah. And that's Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And you'll see when we read it that, yeah, they had to do a lot of interpretation in order to get these four messianic figures out of it. So this is a vision from the book of Zechariah. The four craftsmen are discussed, and there's the references. And... One of them identifies these four craftsmen as the Messiah ben David, the Messiah ben Joseph, Elijah, and the righteous priest. Each will be involved in ushering in the Messianic age. They are mentioned in the Talmud and the book of Zechariah. Well, let's see how clearly they're mentioned in the book of Zechariah, shall we? Zechariah talks about four horns among the Gentiles that scatter Israel, and then they will be counterposed in the last day by four righteous horns who will gather Israel. Verse 18, then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold four horns, symbols of power, government. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, what be these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what come these to do? And he spake saying, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man did lift up his head but these are come to fray them, which means to scare them, to make them afraid, to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. That's it. Did you hear anything about Messiah ben Judah? Did you hear anything about Messiah ben Joseph or Elijah? 
No, this is all interpretation that is put upon this passage by later scholars and rabbis. So you can see this takes a great deal of rabbinic interpretation to get Messiah ben Joseph out of that passage. And nevertheless, they did. By the way, I mentioned that there were four messiahs only because when you say, or when Joseph Field McConkie says that the Jews believed in two messiahs, a Messiah ben Joseph and a Messiah ben Judah, and the Messiah ben Judah is Jesus and the Messiah ben Joseph is Joseph Smith Jr., that sounds a lot more powerful of an argument than saying, well, there's actually four messiahs, but one of them is Joseph Smith. It doesn't sound like it's as dead on a bullseye as the other. But typically, and this was the case with Joseph Hill McConkie, he doesn't mention the other two. He just mentions these two, Judah and Joseph, the sons of. Mormon apologists usually leave out the other two messiahs or craftsmen, probably because it sounds better to trot out only two, one of whom can be Jesus and the other of whom can be Joseph Smith, as opposed to a whole bunch of them. And you're just saying, well, one of them happens to be Joseph Smith. How did the Messiah ben Joseph idea originate? Nobody knows. They just know that it apparently did exist. There are many theories about how it originated. Some believe that this theory, this uh, tradition developed before Christ. Some believe it developed after Christ. And one prominent theory is that the ancient Jewish scholars saw two sets of prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures, one of a glorious and victorious Messiah who will never die. That's all over the place in the Old Testament and the other of a suffering Messiah who will die. And we can see that perhaps most prominently in Isaiah 53, the um, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief passage. So the two descriptions of these messiahs appear to conflict. One's going to be a superhero who's going who's to kick butt and he's going to conquer and he's going to rule and reign forever. And the other is this very sad, very suffering kind of person who will end up dying. It's hard to reconcile those two with the same person. So this theory, and I think it probably has legs, is that a long time ago, the Jews and the scholars of the Jews and the rabbis pouring over these texts saw this. And in order to explain it, they created two different messiahs, one who would be the Messiah ben Judah, the conquering Messiah, and the other would be the Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering Messiah. So the two messiahs will work together to usher in the Messiah ben Judah. In other words, the second coming. So how did the Messiah ben Joseph idea originate? The reason there are so many theories about the origin of the Messiah ben Joseph tradition is because there is so little to be found on the subject. And what there is to be found is often subject to variant interpretations, like that passage from Zechariah for crying out loud. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith linked the Messiah ben Joseph to Joseph Smith's uh, prophecy of Joseph of old found in the Book of Mormon and in his Genesis Book of Mormon, excuse me, Bible translation. So suddenly, suddenly the landscape changes. What appeared to be an obvious imposture in the Book of Mormon and the Bible translation suddenly it became evidence that Joseph Smith had somehow looped into the Messiah ben Joseph tradition. Not only that, but the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 50 for Joseph Fielding McConkie now became the lost passage of scripture on which was based the entire Messiah ben Joseph tradition. That's one of the questions. Where did this come from, remember? 
How did this tradition start? Well, one scholar suggested maybe there was some kind of scriptural thing that they were going off of, which is now lost. I don't think that's required, but it was an idea. It was a theory that one had. Well, here comes Joseph Fielding McConkie swooping in. This is it. It's this part of Genesis 50 that was lost. They knew about it. They developed the tradition. Then they lost that part from the Old Testament. That's why we don't know. But Joseph Smith restored it. Now we know not only the source of the the Messiah bin Joseph tradition, but also we have the prophecy itself. And it's all because of the restoration provided by Joseph Smith. Now, there are a number of issues with Joseph Smith being the Messiah, Ben Joseph, okay? I got to tell you, I was overjoyed to find this paper because what had now become for me a problem with the Book of Mormon, reading 2 Nephi 3, now it not only resolved the problem, it made it into a bonus. It made it into a plus. It made it into a strength. It made it into an evidence for the Book of Mormon. So what was initially an evidence against the Book of Mormon now just doesn't be made even, it made it gets made into an evidence for the Book of Mormon. But after a while, I started thinking about it more. And there are some issues with Joseph Smith being this Messiah bin Joseph. If the ancient Jewish scholars are getting this information from a then extant long ending of Genesis 50, why do their writings omit so many key elements found in Joseph Smith? Translation of Genesis 50. Okay. In other words, If this is really the lost prophecy, it's lost now, but it it was on the brass plates, right? That's where Lehi copies it from. So it was in the Old Testament at least as early as 600 BCE when Lehi leaves Jerusalem. So it existed before that as well. All right. The question is, first off, the answer is that this is where the Joseph Smith or the Messiah bin Joseph tradition starts is from this lost prophecy. My question then is, if that's true, then why is it that these other people who write about the Messiah bin Joseph tradition don't mention any of the other details that are contained in that prophecy? Examples. Why does Joseph Smith, Genesis 50, mention the name of Messiah bin Joseph will be Joseph? And why does it mention his father's name will be Joseph? Okay. Neither of those details get replicated in any of the writings of anybody else who talked about the Messiah bin Joseph tradition. My question is, if they're queuing off this now lost prophecy from the Old Testament, why don't they include those details as well from that same prophecy? Similarly, similarly, why does JST 50 mention that Joseph will be a seer. We don't find that in any of the writings about the Messiah bin Joseph tradition. Why does JST 50 mention he will be given power to bring forth God's word? That doesn't occur in any of these writings about the tradition. And why does JST 50 mention that he will not be destroyed? Right? That's in there as well. That this Messiah bin Joseph, i.e. Joseph Smith, he will not be destroyed especially when that is part and parcel of the Messiah bin Joseph tradition, that he will be destroyed, that he will die, he will suffer and die. And that is 
found in 2 Nephi chapter 3, verse 14, this idea that Joseph Smith Sr., excuse me, Joseph Smith Jr., will never be destroyed. And thus prophesied Joseph, saying, Behold, that seer will the Lord bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise which I have obtained of the Lord of the fruit of my loins shall be fulfilled. Behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. Well, obviously, Joseph Smith wrote that in 1829 and not in 1845, the year after he was murdered in Carthage jail, along with his brother Hiram, i.e. destroyed. So this part of the prophecy appears to not fit Joseph Smith Jr. because it says he won't be destroyed, that those who seek to destroy him will be confounded, and Joseph Smith did end up being destroyed, and those who sought to destroy him were not confounded. So the conclusion to this Messiah bin Joseph segment is that this was something I discovered in the 1980s during my Mormon apologist phase. It really helped me resolve an issue with the Book of Mormon involving 2 Nephi 3. I've talked about that. But over time, I have seen the connections as more pretended than real, more strained than solid. And I can't help wondering why, if the Messiah bin Joseph was predicted in such detail in the long ending of Genesis 50 that, 50 that Joseph Smith gives us, why did all the details seem to vanish from subsequent writings? It actually gets worse because there's this issue of the prophecy of Moses. Intertwined with the prophecy of Joseph of old regarding the Messiah bin Joseph is a prophecy that a man named Moses would arise to deliver captive Israel from bondage in Egypt. And here we find it in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 50 verses 34, 35 and 29b and the lord swear unto joseph that he would preserve his seed forever saying i will raise up moses and a rod shall be in his hand and he shall gather together my people remember this is 400 years before moses that joseph of old is allegedly giving this prophecy so he's prophesying moses by name talking about the rod He'll gather together my people. He shall lead them as a flock. He shall smite the waters of the Red Sea with his rod. He knows that as well. And he shall have judgment and shall write the word of the Lord. See, Moses writes the word of the Lord. Joseph Smith Jr. writes the word of the Lord. And he shall not speak many words, for I will write unto him my law by the finger of mine own hand. And I will make a spokesman for him. And his name shall be called Aaron. So Joseph of old even knows that Moses is going to have a spokesman who will be named Aaron. He knows everything about Moses 400 years in advance. And then finally, he says, for he shall be nursed by the king's daughter and she'll be called her son. He even knows that. It's like Joseph of old read the book of Exodus and knew all these things 400 years before they happened so he could prophesy about them in incredible detail. Indeed, even in more detail than he gives about Joseph Smith Sr., so here's the issue. If there once existed in Genesis 50 a detailed prophecy of Moses and Aaron in the original long ending, the one that got lost but did exist at least as of 600 BCE, why do no subsequent Jewish scholars seem to have ever heard of it before? They're aware of the Messiah bin Joseph tradition. If they're getting it from this long lost prophecy, why are they not aware of the Moses tradition and that that was prophesied by Joseph of old. That would have been all over the place. And we would have found that 
I would presume, in many different writings, if indeed there had been an ancient prophecy of Joseph now lost, which they knew about at the time and wrote about at the time, and that it properly and correctly predicted Moses and Aaron and his rod and the Red Sea and all of it. I think that's an issue. Joseph's spokesman was deleted from Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 50. This is one of the changes. Most of it's a mirror image. Genesis 50 being copied from 2 Nephi 3. But 3.18 in 2 Nephi says, And the Lord said unto me also, I will raise up unto the fruit of thy loins, and I will make for him a spokesman. And I, behold, I will give unto him that he shall write the writings of the fruit of thy loins unto the fruit of thy loins, and the spokesman of thy loins shall declare it. So back in 1829, when this is being translated, once again, Joseph Smith is limited to the work of writing. And then a spokesman will be prepared who will declare it. But by the time in 1832, three years later, where he's putting this prophecy into the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, the spokesman is dropped. While the mention of Moses' spokesman remains and gives his name as Aaron, no spokesman is mentioned for the Latter-day Seer named Joseph. So if you put that back in with the timeline, all of it seems to be reflective of a Joseph Smith who in 1829 had doubts about his ability to, to do things. He was going to translate the Book of Mormon if that was it. Other people would have to do the preaching. But now he needs more license, scriptural license, to do more than translate the Book of Mormon. And so the spokesman that occurred originally in 1829 and 2 Nephi 3 is now gone when he's copying this prophecy into Genesis 50 in 1832. Which raises another question. If Lehi got the prophecy of Joseph in Egypt from the brass plates, which is what the Book of Mormon says, and if Lehi included the part about Joseph's descendants writing the word of the Lord, but providing a spokesman to declare the word, the word which he did and which we just quoted. And if Joseph Smith restored this prophecy to Genesis 50, as it would have been on the brass plates, right? That's the whole thing about the Joseph Smith translation. He's restoring what was there originally. So the Joseph Smith translation would presumably be restoring the, the prophecy to the way it was originally on the brass plates from which Lehi quoted it in the Book of Mormon. Which raises the question, why does Lehi leave out the part about a spokesman being provided for Joseph Smith Jr.? It's there in the original in Genesis 50, but, excuse me, it's not there in the original. It's a little bit backward because, of course, uh, the Book of Mormon is translated first in 1829, and then the Genesis 50 translation happens three years later. The Book of Mormon mentions that Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith Jr. will have a spokesman. Genesis 50 does not. So if Lehi is quoting from this prophecy of Joseph in Genesis 50, which doesn't exist yet, except in the, the realm of the Book of Mormon it does, why is it? that Lehi leaves out the part about a spokesman being provided. And actually, I think I'm asking that the wrong way. 
why does Lehi include the part about a spokesman being provided for Joseph, right? Okay, let me back up. Lehi says, Joseph prophesied that there would be a spokesman for Moses and a spokesman for Joseph Smith Jr. The prophecy, as it gets put in there, has the part about the spokesman for Moses, but nothing about a spokesman for Joseph Smith Jr. So where does Lehi get that from? Okay. Because of the way it's presented, Lehi's getting it from the brass plates. The brass plates don't mention a spokesman for Joseph. Lehi includes a spokesman for Joseph. If Lehi is quoting that prophecy, why does Lehi add that detail? Where does he get it from? It's not in the original prophecy. See, this is the problem that it creates, if you think about it logically. And hopefully I've been doing logically. I know I've been going a little bit back and forth here. I hope I'm being clear. Does this go along with the changes we have seen allowing for Joseph Smith to do more than just translate the Book of Mormon? I already asked that question. Now, 2 Nephi chapter 2 through 3 are patterned on Genesis 49. I think I mentioned this before. In Genesis 49, Jacob gathers his sons to him to pronounce a blessing on each. In 2 Nephi chapter 2 through verses 4, 11, Lehi gathers his sons and grandchildren to him to pronounce a blessing on each. My question there is, is this two groups independently practicing the same tradition? Or is the Book of Mormon mirroring, once again, a story from the Bible? Is this where Joseph Smith got this idea for Lehi to bless his children from the idea in Genesis 49 of Jacob doing the same thing with his children? Okay, that's enough for 2 Nephi chapter 3. 2 Nephi chapter 4 contains what is sometimes called the Psalm of Nephi. Lehi dies in 2 Nephi chapter 4 verse 12. Nephi's brothers get angry with him again because of the admonitions of the Lord, i.e. Nephi is telling them how to live their lives again. So in 2 Nephi Chapter 4, verses 17 through 35, is an extended meditation and prayer by Nephi, sometimes called the Psalm of Nephi, because it resembles a Hebrew scriptures psalm or an Old Testament psalm. Let's quote a few verses to see what's up with Nephi. 17 through 19. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. So this psalm is famous in the Book of Mormon. It's the only one in the Book of Mormon. But it's famous for reasons other than its beauty and literary attractiveness. It is also the only place in the Book of Mormon where a character is presented as anything other than two-dimensional. And indeed, up to this point, Nephi is the classic Book of Mormon two-dimensional character. Every description of Nephi has been two-dimensional. He is the righteous son who follows God no matter what. Boring. But here, Nephi gives us a peek into his inner workings, and many see a deeper, more profound character. This is exactly what I used to think as well. And if people would say, 
that the Book of Mormon just has two-dimensional characters, I'd bring up 2 Nephi 4. That's exactly what I used to think. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> Until I began rereading the Psalm of Nephi for this lesson. And now I think I'm changing my mind a bit. So upright, uptight Nephi is not so upright after all. Not only does he he does he heave sins, does he have sins, he is going to ruminate about what a bad person he is in this passage. But what exactly is this sin that he is so exercised about? We might think Nephi would be remorseful that he had to go back to Jerusalem to get the plates and kill Laban in the process, a guy who was drunk in the street and couldn't defend himself. Yeah, maybe that's been weighing on his conscience. I could understand that. But no, that's not it at all. There's no mention of Laban in this meditation, this psalm, in which he is grieving over his past sins. Instead, Nephi seems to bewail the fact that he is angry with his brothers. This appears to be the sin that is causing him so much concern in his psalm. But before we get to Nephi's sin, we have to hear him talk about how great he is. Oh, this is the good old Nephi that we know. My God hath been my support. He hath led me through mine afflictions in the wilderness, and he hath preserved me upon the waters of the great deep. He hath filled me with his love, even unto the consuming of my flesh. He hath confounded mine enemies, unto the causing of them to quake before me. Behold, he hath heard my cry by day, and he hath given me knowledge by visions in the nighttime. Can you hear? This is a good old Nephi that we all know and love, right? And by day have I waxed bold in mighty prayer before him. Yea, my voice have I sent upon high. And angels came down and ministered unto me. And upon the wings of his spirit hath my body been carried away upon exceedingly high mountains. And mine eyes have beheld great things, yea, even too great for man. Therefore I was bidden that I should not write them. So before we get to his sin, we have to hear about how wonderful he is and how God loves him best. And then we get to verse 27 through 29, which is where we finally understand that Nephi appears to be upset with himself, that he is angry with his enemies, who would obviously be Laman and Lemuel, and sometimes Ishmael. And why should I yield to sin, he goes on, because of my flesh? Yea, why should I give way to temptations? that the evil one have placed in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul. Why am I angry because of my enemy? There's the tell. Why am I angry because of my enemy? Awake my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. And then he repeats it in verse 29. Do not anger again because of mine enemies. That's the sin that's causing him this anguish. Do not slacken my strength because of mine afflictions. He goes on, verse 31, O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? And in verse 33, O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? And then he ends by saying, uh, please, don't put a stumbling block in my way, but put it in the ways of my enemy. Make them stumble instead. So this really does appear to be what it is that's causing him all this anguish and remorse in 2 Nephi 4. So Nephi is publicly proclaiming, or at least writing it in their book, that he is upset with himself for being angry with his brothers. These would be the same brothers, if you've read the Book of Mormon up to this point, 
who beat the crap out of him every other page in the Book of Mormon. They've tried to kill Nephi more than once. They just got angry with him in the same chapter right before he gives his psalm. And these same brothers are going to force Nephi to run away for safety and separate his group from the Lamanites in the very next verses because, once again, they're going to try and kill him. You mean those enemies? So trivia question for the day. What do you call it when a person makes a point of letting everybody know that they are feeling bad for being angry with people who are trying to kill him? Oh, that's it. It's called a humble brag. The definition, an ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. So Nephi is so freaking righteous that the worst sin he can commit is being angry at his brothers who have been beating him up and trying to kill him. Yeah. Nephi's psalm, as I said, is often used to show that Nephi is not just a two-dimensional character who's always righteous because here he shows he feels guilt for his sins. But this is the RFM translation, which I just came to this time while reading it. Nephi is still a two-dimensional character. Nephi is doing what he has always done, bragging about how righteous he is, which he does throughout his psalm. But also, he is so righteous that he feels bad about being angry with his brothers who are trying to kill him. Give me a break. So now we go to the last chapter in the material, 2 Nephi chapter 5. With Lehi dead, there's nothing holding Laman and Lemuel back from getting Nephi. And this is in the very first two verses of 2 Nephi 5, which means it's the very next two verses after Nephi concludes his psalm at the end of chapter 4. Behold, it came to pass that I, Nephi, did cry much unto the Lord my God because of the anger of my brethren. But behold, their anger did increase against me insomuch that they did seek to take away my life. And I feel so bad for being angry about that. Nephi splits with his people. He leaves the group with the people who follow him. They leave. They travel for many days. They found the city of Nephi. But God performs a miracle so that none of Nephi's people will ever want to intermingle or intermarry with the Lamanites. Because that would be horrible. The Lamanites are wicked. The Nephites are good. They shouldn't be intermarrying with the Lamanites, and God's going to cause a miracle so that that will not happen. Do you know what miracle God does? That's the trivia question. Oh, wait, but first, the Nephites build a temple. <laughs> There's a lot of unlikely stories in the Book of Mormon. This is among them. Verse 16 of 2 Nephi 5, And I, Nephi, did build a temple. Well, he built a, he built a ship, for crying out loud, and sailed across the Pacific Ocean, why can't he build a temple too? I mean, he's Nephi. And I did construct it after the manner of the temple of Solomon. Save it were not built of so many precious things. Do you have any idea how big the temple of Solomon was? Do you have any idea how many people had to work on it? Do you have any idea how many years it took to construct it? But Nephi can do this. Give me this mountain. Give me this temple. For they were not to be found upon the land. Wherefore, it could not be built like unto Solomon's temple. But the manner of the construction was like unto the Temple of Solomon. That means huge, massive, multi-ton stones. Where did they get the stones from? Where did they quarry them? How did they dress them? 
How did they lift them into place? These things were not told. And the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. Well, of course it was, because Nephi built it. The question is, how did Nephi, with the few people who followed him, end up building a temple? And not just any temple, but a temple after the manner of the Temple of Solomon. This seems like a rather large project for a handful of people with no apparent training or skills. Okay, now for the miracle. What did God do to keep the Nephites from wanting to intermarry with the Lamanites? He gave the Lamanites a skin of blackness. And this is 2 Nephi chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And he had caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, that they had become like unto a flint. That's the Lamanites. Wherefore, as they were white, wherefore, as they were white, and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. And thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto thy people, say they shall repent of their iniquities, and cursed shall be the seed of him that mixeth with their seed, for they shall be cursed even with the same cursing. What cursing? Oh, the skin of blackness. And the Lord spake it, and it was done. And because of their cursing, which was upon them, they did become an idle people, full of mischief and subtlety, and did seek in the wilderness for beasts of prey. They were hunters, and the Nephites were gatherers. Oh, here's some pictures from a children's book of Mormon that shows this distinction. So in these pictures, can you guess, class, which one is the Nephite and which one is the Lamanite? And how can you tell? Yeah, Nephite's white. Lamanites, dark-skinned. Uh, down here, Nephites white, Lamanites dark-skinned. Yeah, that's how you can tell. It's from this passage in the Book of Mormon. Now, what does the New Church Manual say? Once again, we're going from the Come Follow Me Manual. And I'm quoting from the Come Follow Me Manual on this very subject. There's a subheading in the manual. It says, what was the curse that came upon the Lamanites? That's a good question. The answer now, the official answer from the church in its official Come Follow Me manual is this. In Nephi's day, the curse of the Lamanites was that they were cut off from the Lord's presence because of their iniquity. I thought it was the black skin was part of it. It goes on. This meant that the spirit of the Lord was withdrawn from their lives. When Lamanites later embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, the curse of God did no more follow them. Okay. This last paragraph also directly quoted from the manual. The Book of Mormon also states that a mark of dark skin came upon the Lamanites after the Nephites separated from them. The nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. Exactly. The nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood, even though the text says it's a black skin or skin of darkness. The church is going to back off of that and they're going to try and waffle and they're going to say the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. So now that we have all these prophets and we've had many, many prophets over the 200 years this church has existed, the more prophets that we've had over time, the less we know about the Book of Mormon and about God and about theology. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't that strange? You think that the more prophets we have over time, the more we would learn. Instead, they're not adding knowledge, they're subtracting knowledge from what was given by prior prophets. The nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. So they're going to say, 
our position on this is we're not going to take a position. Which is funny because when you say that, even though I know what they're doing and I think the church should be commended for trying to get away from that strict interpretation, well, the straightforward interpretation of what it's saying, when you say the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood, they're giving place for that interpretation to still be at the table, that the curse is the skin of darkness. So they're fudging. They don't want to take a position. They are the quintessential fence sitters on theology and doctrine, ironically. They conclude in the manual, the mark initially distinguished the Lamanites from the Nephites. Later, as the Nephites and Lamanites each went through periods of wickedness and righteousness, the mark became irrelevant. So once again, this line, the nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. Well, what it says is this. As they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. It says skin of blackness right there. So three points. One, it looks like the curse has something to do with the color of their skin. And it was made black. It says a skin of blackness. Two, it is directly contrasted with the white Nephites and how white the Lamanites used to be before the curse, you know, the curse of the skin of blackness. And designed to make it so the Lamanites would not be attractive to the Nephites, which means, number three, that this curse is not something that can just be taken off or rubbed out. It is permanent, okay, like a skin of blackness. It obviously means what it says, that the Lord caused the skin of blackness. He caused the skin of the Lamanites to turn black in the Book of Mormon, and that was the curse, part of the curse anyway or the sign of the curse, whatever you want to call it. It's not a good thing in the Book of Mormon. So, number one, like I said before, let us commend the church for at least not doubling down on what this passage does obviously mean, even though it's still in the Book of Mormon. By the way, there's a prophet at the head of the church. He could receive an inspired revision for the Book of Mormon and change this passage, sort of like Joseph Smith did with just about everything in the Bible and some things in the Book of Mormon and a lot of his revelations, change them, modify their meaning, keep them up to date. Two, but what are we going backward? But why are we going backward again? I.e., why are prophets claiming to not know the answer something to something that their predecessors were completely clear on? This is like backing down on the question of Book of Mormon geography. Now the church's position is we don't have a position on where anything in the Book of Mormon took place, even though prior prophets did. We're going backward. We're going from knowing stuff to not knowing stuff. We're going from having a position to not having a position. Ah, so this takes us back to four years ago, January 18th, 2020, in an article in the Salt Lake Tribune by Peggy Fletcher Stack, titled, Error in Printed LDS Church Manual Could Revive Racial Criticisms. Remember, this is when they did the first Come Follow Me manual on the Book of Mormon four years ago. They included a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith that said, the black skin is the curse. And here's the story. A recent blunder with a Sunday school manual for use by all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints could set back progress the Utah-based faith has made on the issue of racism in the past few years and alienate people of color. Last year, the church produced a new manual for its 2020 curriculum, which will be a study of the faith's signature Scripture, the Book of Mormon, 
which Latter-day Saints believe tells the religious history of peoples in the ancient Americas. Several passages describe a dark skin descending on one of the clans, and for much of the faith's history, that has been seen as a racial curse. These days, though, that interpretation is no longer part of church teaching. That is why several early readers of the 2020 Come Follow Me manual were, manual were troubled to see a note in one lesson, this lesson, that is a throwback to previous thinking. The dark skin, this is quoting from the 2020 manual before they changed it. The dark skin was placed upon the Lamanites so that they could be distinguished from the Nephites and to keep the two peoples from mixing. The book explains, citing a statement made some 60 years ago by then apostle and future president, Joseph Fielding Smith, future church president. The dark skin was the sign of the curse. That's the line that got everybody's attention. The dark skin was the sign of the curse. The curse was the withdrawal of the spirit of the Lord. Dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. That was all from the prior manual. So it has some uh, softer language, but it does contain this problematic statement from Joseph Fielding Smith reproduced in the 2020 Book of Mormon Come Follow Me manual. The dark skin was the sign of the curse. It's very difficult given the church's uh, racial history, racist history. And it's made even worse by the fact that as of this point, President Nelson has been trying to uh, build and maintain relationships with the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And having this happen was not helpful to that. Previous church leaders, why is it that former LDS church leaders understood exactly what this passage in the Book of Mormon means, but modern-day prophets and apostles cannot? Milton R. Hunter from the Council of the Seventy, in his book, Archaeology in the Book of Mormon, from 1956, page 191, says this, As is well known, two peoples, a white race and those of a darker color, inhabited ancient America for approximately 1,000 years' time. The white race as is well known, well, maybe to Mormons, the white race was called Nephites and the darker race, Lamanites. The reader may say, yes, we understand that there were a white race and a dark race in ancient America from approximately 600 BC until approximately 480. But we have understood also that by the latter date, all the white people, Nephites, except Moroni, had been killed in a war with the darker people or Lamanites. He is going over all this in order just to make the point that he thinks there were probably some white people on the Lamanite side for the final battle. But in the process of doing that, he's laying out exactly what it is the Mormon church's understanding of the Book of Mormon was in the 1950s, even amongst the leaders of the church, such as in the Council of the Seventy and Milton R. Hunter, who was really quite a respected author and scriptorian. And he goes on. It is true that the Nephite nation ended toward the close of the 5th century AD, but probably many of the white Nephites were saved from death by joining the Lamanites. These then would not be followers of Christ and would be unfaithful ones. The last great war was not fought entirely on the lines of race, but probably the determining factor was that one group allied itself with the Lamanite traditions and the other group followed the Nephite traditions, including a belief in Jesus Christ. Thus, there probably were dark and white people in each army. So you can see how this isn't helping the current position of the church, trying to say we don't know what it means. Well, Milton R. Hunter knew what it meant, and all the members of the church knew what it meant, and all the leaders of the church knew what it meant. 
including Spencer W. Kimball, who gave a talk at BYU in 1960, and he was famous for his passion for the Indian placement program. And he would talk about the dark skin of these uh, Native Americans, these young Native Americans being placed with Mormon families, and over time, they would start to grow lighter. Their skin would become whiter. And he saw that as a removal of the curse, as talked about in the Book of Mormon, because he saw it as a literal curse of literal black skin. He says, truly the scales of darkness are falling from their eyes and they are fast becoming a white and delightsome people. No, he's not using it symbolically. He goes on, for years they have been growing delightsome and they are now becoming white and delightsome as they were promised, where in the Book of Mormon. The day of the Lamanites is nigh. For years they have been growing delightsome and they are now becoming white and delightsome as they were promised. In this picture, of the 20 Lamanite missionaries, which he's displaying to the audience, 15 of the 20 were as light as Anglos. Five were darker, but equally delightsome. So he's drawing a distinction between the white and the delightsome. Delightsome being faithful, but the white being literal skin color. He goes on, the children in the home placement program in Utah are often lighter than their brothers and sisters in the Hogan's on the reservation. He goes on, at one meeting, a father and mother and their 16-year-old daughter were present, the little member girl, 16, sitting between the dark father and mother, and it was evident she was several shades lighter than her parents. On the same reservation, in the same Hogan, subject to the same sun and wind and weather. So he's saying it's not because of the weather, it's not because of the sun, it's not because of a tan. This is a spiritual miracle that's happening, and it's literal. There was the doctor in a Utah city who for two years had had an Indian boy in his home who stated that he was some shades lighter than the younger brother just coming into the program from the reservation. See what living a good life as a Mormon will do for you? These young members of the church are changing to whiteness and to delightsomeness. One white elder jokingly said that he and his companion were donating blood regularly to the hospital in the hope that the process might be accelerated, period, end of quote from Spencer Kimball, who obviously sees the dark skin as very literal and the promise of the miracle of it being turned white upon faithfulness as being literally fulfilled. Here's Joseph Fielding Smith. This is the quote, I believe, that ended up in that 2020 manual. In 1957, Joseph Fielding Smith taught that the dark skin was placed upon the Lamanites so that they could be distinguished from the Nephites and to keep the two peoples from mixing. I mean, that's what the, the Book of Mormon says. Then he says, the dark skin was the sign of the curse. I underlined it because that's the part that got replicated in the 22 manual that caused the stir. So here's the 2020 printed lesson text. This is the one that included this quote from Joseph Fielding Smith. It stated, the dark skin was the sign of the curse. And once again, that is really the, the problematic expression. This is in the manual, printed, 2020. The dark skin was the sign of the curse, but also that the dark skin is no longer to be considered a sign of the curse. So it used to be, but no longer. The church issued an apology and asked members to disregard the paragraph in the printed manual. Here's the 2020 revised lesson text, which by the way, is the same as it is today, four years later. Same lesson manual on the Book of Mormon. It was changed to this, excuse me. 
<clears throat> the curse of the Lamanites was that they were cut off from the Lord's presence. See, it's not the dark skin anymore being the sign of the curse. And that a mark of dark skin came upon the Lamanites after the Nephites separated from them. The nature and appearance of this mark are not fully understood. So that's what they changed the original two in the revised lesson from four years ago. Now, unfortunately, right when this happened, um, Elder Gary Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was scheduled to address the NAACP. And uh, this was quite an inopportune time for this to happen. It seemed to be uh, very embarrassing, obviously, for Gary Stevenson. Timing could not have been worse, happening as it did in January of 2020 and right before Elder Gary Stevenson was scheduled to speak at an NAACP meeting. And we actually have video of Elder Stevenson's apology courtesy of Thinker of Thoughts, Jonathan Streeter. But first off, here is what it is that Elder Stevenson said. One of our recent church manuals includes a paragraph with some outdated commentary about race. It was mistakenly included in the printed version of the manual, which had been prepared for print nearly two years ago. This happened a long, long time ago, two years ago, back when we used to be racist. <laughs> when it was brought to the attention of church leaders late last year, they directed that it be immediately removed in our annual online manual, which is used by the great majority of our members. We have also directed that any future printed manuals will reflect this change. So a number of printed manuals were done with the, the offending statement in it. They went out, but then... They said, okay, we'll just leave those out there and any future printed manuals. By the way, this is, I don't know, it's early 2020. You would think that all the printed manuals would have been printed long in advance because the curriculum starts at the beginning of 2020. But they directed that any future printed manuals will reflect this change. We're asking our members, he went on, to disregard the paragraph in the printed manual. It says that in there, but please don't uh, regard that. Just disregard that. By the way, he told this to the NAACP. I am unaware, correct me if I'm wrong, and if anybody knows any different, please put it in the comments. By the way, please hit like and please hit subscribe. Please leave a comment below. I'm unaware of any place where church leaders actually did ask their members to disregard that uh, statement in the printed manual. He told it to the NAACP that that's what they're doing. I'm just unaware of any place where they did it. I think that this might have been untrue. But he said, we're asking our members to disregard the paragraph in the printed manual. Now, I'm deeply saddened and hurt by this error and for any pain that it may have caused our members and for others. I would just like to reiterate our position as a church is clear. We do condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. And we disavow any theory advanced that black or dark skin is a sign of a curse. It sounds like he's disavowing the Book of Mormon. How can you have an apostle of Jesus Christ in the year 2020 disavowing something that's taught in the Book of Mormon very plainly and very clearly without disavowing the Book of Mormon itself? We are brothers and sisters, and I consider you friends. Hello? Someone was knocking on my door. Once upon a midnight dreary. Oh, well. I'm almost done here. Um, we are brothers and sisters, and I consider you friends. I love and appreciate you, he said, drawing applause from those gathered. That was from the Salt Lake Tribune. 
And now let me see here if we have this. Yes, we do. Let's see if we can play this. Now, there's a lot of people eating. So they're really not even paying that much attention to what he's saying, which I think was really good news for Elder Stevenson. I think he was really glad about that. But he opens his comments with this while people are eating. You have to listen carefully to hear it over all uh, the clatter of utensils and such. But here we go. And here is Elder Stevenson giving that apology. Let me stop this right now because I thought I had just the brief clip in which he mentions this. And uh, that's what I had before, but now it's the entire 15-minute address. Let me see if I can find really quickly where he has this apology. Maybe it's at the end. Here we go. It is toward the beginning. My apologies. Now, prior to my prepared remarks, I'd like to address a matter with you. Some of you may be aware from a news article published over the weekend, one of our recent church manuals includes a paragraph with some outdated commentary about race. It was mistakenly included in the printed version of the manual, which had been prepared for print nearly two years ago. When it was brought to the attention of church leaders late last year, <clears throat> they directed that it be immediately removed in our annual online manual, which is used by the great majority of our members. We have also directed that any future printed manuals that are not will reflect this change. We're asking our members to disregard the paragraph of the printed manual. Now I'm deeply saddened hurt by this error and for any pain that may have caused our members and for others. I'd just like to reiterate our position as a church is clear. We do condemn all racism past and present in any form and we disavow any theory advanced that black or dark skin is a sign of a curse. We are brothers and sisters and I consider you 
There we go. I'm glad I finally found that. So there is Elder Gary Stevenson at the NAACP meeting in early 2020, issuing an apology for the manual, including what leaders of the church actually did, used to teach about the Book of Mormon. And it's what the Book of Mormon says still today. The Book of Mormon hasn't been changed. They're just trying to hedge their bets about what they're saying about the Book of Mormon publicly. Okay. So let me go here. I'll remove that. I'll look at the time. Oh my gosh, we've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. I didn't even hear the bell. So obviously primaries already started and everybody's late for that and Relief Society and uh, sorry about that. Okay, so that is all we have for today in Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon. Please hit like, please hit subscribe and please join us next time as we continue with lesson eight of the Come Follow Me manual. All right, so I'm gonna find the outro music and I'll bid you once again a fond farewell and I look forward to seeing you next time.